0: Uh, Welcome to Indian Writers Forum. We have with us Vijay Prashad, historian, professor and journalist. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, Recently in a talk, you had mentioned that the neoliberal agenda, the project, is not only an economic project, it's also a cultural project. So could you uh, elaborate on that?
1: Sure. I mean, look, uh, you have a crisis that's global, and it's a crisis of jobs and employment. Uh, You know, the International Labour Organization has suggested that with every passing year, tens of millions of people, young people with college degrees included, are not going to get jobs. And if they get jobs, the ILO has suggested, it won't be what they call decent work. You know, by decent work, they don't mean interesting work. They mean work with good standards, et cetera, decent hours, decent uh, health benefits, decent pension benefits. So the jobs have degraded. And you've entered now a phrase where More and more people, perhaps the majority of waged workers, will be part of the so-called precariat. You know, the kind of precarious proletariat. The proletariat which has precarity or insecurity as their basic mode of existence. So in this situation, how do you as a democratic government come to people and say, look, you're going to make it, you know, don't worry, We're, we're going to figure things out. Because governments don't have the ability to say that and because governments have the religion of the market, you know, where they turn and say, you know, the market is going to find you employment, and because this market is not seeming, you know, it doesn't seem to be able to deliver, there's a new cultural project that's been in the works for perhaps the last 25 years, and this cultural project is interesting. The project suggests that you Have it within you to make it. You as an individual. Mm. And you as an individual need to take coaching classes. You need to go to a special academy for entrepreneurs. Mm. And you need to somehow imbibe the spirit of entrepreneurialism. You know, uh, Keynes wrote about the animal spirits of capitalism. Somehow there's this idea to generate in individuals this animal spirit of entrepreneurialism. And this is going to be created as the new subject of the modern period. You know, we're not citizens, we're not even consumers. We're meant to be entrepreneurs. And I see this as the central cultural project of neoliberalism. You know, if it's not able to produce, say, a jobs project, you know, employment, if it's not able to solve these questions, it puts the onus, the burden of solving this issue on the individual Mm. and produces this kind of cultural place where you are supposed to go take English language classes, go to a coaching institute, you know, do a hundred of these kind of uh, self-help slash corporate development you know, things, go for seminars and you must better yourself to make it and if you don't make it, it's your fault. Mm. This is a very much a cultural part of neoliberalism. It's not in the so-called economic domain alone. Uh, we'll
0: come back to the cultural project of it. So you mentioned about the uh, unemployed youth and uh, could you tell how they are forming resistances, are they forming in different parts of the world with some examples and of course India also, how, uh, how these uh, unemployed youth are resisting against the structure?
1: So Interesting that the World Bank looked at North Africa, actually they looked at this globally. I just looked at the North Africa information but they looked at it globally. One of the things they found which surprised me is, yes, there is a general unemployment problem. Some of this, of course, has to do with mechanization, increased productivity, you know, various factors that have led into this. But what they found was that if, they, if you break up the uh, people looking for jobs into three sectors, mm-hmm. that is to say those with virtually no education, those with very high education, you know, PhDs, whatever, top engineering degrees, that kind of thing and then the middle section which was a college graduate the highest per capita rate of unemployment was for the college graduate so those who went and got very you know advanced degrees mm-hmm. they could find employment say in some technology company or something or the other they generally found themselves being absorbed mm-hmm. those who had very minimal education could also find employment now doesn't mean that it's Remunerative employment doesn't mean it's decent work, but they could find some employment. It's those who had a college degree who were not then prepared to go out there and work in a tea shop mm-hmm. and were not prepared literally to go out there and get some high-tech job because they had a college degree. The rate of unemployment there per capita was the highest. And when I looked at the North Africa information, what was interesting is during the time of the unrest in North Africa, in Egypt, in Tunisia, etc., They said there's a demographic bulge, in other words, it's a youth bulge. Mm. Actually, the explanation for the rising in North Africa wasn't by age. Mm. That is to say, it was not just because there's a demographic youth bulge. It was by education. Mm. So very large numbers of people in these urban areas that came into the squares were people who had college degrees. Mm. You know, that's why they understood how to use social media, whatever. Mm. Again, it wasn't, the explanatory factor wasn't Facebook or Twitter or even just merely youth, it was college educated. So in other parts of North Africa, Morocco and Algeria, etc., there are trade unions of unemployed college graduates, because they see themselves having a discrete kind of politics, you know. They went and they did their degrees, they followed all those so-called rules. Mm-hmm. They studied hard for the exams, they got into college, and they got their BA degree, they got their BS degree, whatever they got, couldn't get a job. And they are with a great sense of frustration is this section that either becomes, you know, goes to the squares and demands the overthrow of the government or becomes in other countries the foot soldiers of the right wing. Mm -hmm. You know, this is the kind of section that feels betrayed by the hierarchies and is not prepared for a socialist project because there is no preparation in many of these places. You know, there is no socialist organizations in colleges and so on. So they are easy fodder for the right. Mm. And, you know, when one says the right wing's mass base is, say, petty bourgeois, lower middle class, whatever, that's all very well and, you know, fancy uh, terminology. The point is that it's often these unemployed college graduates who have certain skills, you know, they they are able to read, write, etc., communicate with each other, use the Internet effectively, and they are frustrated. Mm. And so the politics can swing in some countries to the left, and some countries to the right
0: this reminds me of uh, how in nazi germany uh, 20% of the population was unemployed and you know really uh, was fodder for the um, hitler so when we talk about uh, in in that terms when we talk about india um, is it this competitiveness that's creating so much hate politics when it comes to say uh, reservation when it comes to attacking minorities is it this competitiveness that is uh, make, making it easy for the right wing to pe- divide the people.
1: Well, you know, let's go back now. I think more than twenty years to the Mandal Commission period, when not when Mandal Commission was put in in 1980, but 1990, 91, late 80s, when the agitation developed. Mm-hmm. You know, the agitation didn't develop inside a shop; it developed in the ex, you know, just outside college campuses, because mm-hmm. it was about colleges and reservations in colleges and the outrage that certain people from privileged backgrounds had mm-hmm. you know how dare are you know uh, ambitions are going to be curtailed mm-hmm. by reservations etc so educational institutions have been a real hot spot mm-hmm. for the politics tilting rightward as you know opportunities have declined mm-hmm. and in a sense as the left has been unable to articulate to this section of people not the people who are saying my privileges are being taken away, I'm angry, but people who are saying that I've but done everything, huh? But to them also. But to also, them also. Yeah. What do we have to offer by way of a vision, you know, a cultural vision? I'm not talking about, you know, the politics of resentment, meaning why you don't have a job, join us. Mm-hmm. You don't have... A, that, that's a politics of resentment in a way. Mm-hmm. The left has to be much more than a politics of resentment. It has to be the politics of great aspiration for a better society, mm-hmm. not a great aspiration for individuals but for a much better society, better organization of social wealth, etc. So in that sense, this long term period in India, there's been a cultivated set of resentments, humiliations, angers uh, that have emerged out of generally young people. I mean, this is a very young country. There is a youth bulge, but it's not all young people that are feeling resentful and angry. There are people who come from specific castes who feel that they're, you know, the kind of ancestral opportunities have been taken away from them. There are uh, sections of people who feel they've been pushed through this neoliberal culture to go to, you know, coaching classes or take medical degrees or whatever, and there's nothing at the other end. You know, it's, it's one thing to believe that a state helps organize education and then say that the market will provide employment. What if there's a mismatch between the generation of education and the opportunities produced by the market if there's a mismatch you're going to have a serious political crisis mm-hmm. and i don't think the indian state and i don't think the indian elites have thought this through mm-hmm. you know and this is not an indian problem this is a global problem because in other countries as well they say we build opportunities through education mm-hmm. and then you you know and then you know you just jump off a cliff OK, because the market will deliver jobs. The state is not going to come in and deliver jobs. So this is wishful thinking. And it's also very dangerous for the elites. They have in, What I'm saying is they've created a dangerous uh, dynamic mm-hmm. by saying let's in, increase education institutions and these are often profit making. So somebody is making a lot of money churning out young people with degrees mm-hmm. and at the other end they're saying well the market will make a job for you. But it's not. And it's never going to. Because productivity and machines are displacing labour. So you're going to have a lot of people with this basic B.A., B.Sc. or some coaching diploma degree standing at the other end saying, what's going on? And they are going to either go right or left. And in the way in which politics has swung globally, they are going rightward. And that's very dangerous.
0: Can you give us a similar picture of U.S. at present and with respect to the Indians in U.S.
1: America is not as young a country as India. In other words, um, it's, you know, it's fairly balanced age distribution. It doesn't have a huge youth population. It's also a much smaller population than India. It's about what, you know, one quarter, one fifth of the Indian population. But in the United States, the locus of resentment is not so much at the college level. And I'll come back to that in a minute. It's at the level of people who in the 1980s, 90s and early 2000s moved in a very large uh, body into white-collar occupations that basically are white-collar service sector, business processing, that kind of occupation. And, you know, these are people who in a previous generation, their parents' generation, may have had factory jobs. So their parents' factory jobs closed down. They would have gone to some college. They might have received some moderate forms of education. And then they went into back office kind of uh, work. Now, by the 1990s, we saw back office work start to leave the United States. See, if factory jobs left in the 60s and 70s, back office jobs leave in the 90s and 2000s. They first go to Ireland, then come to India. And this sector, this white-collar sector, when it gets pushed out, these are the men and women in their 50s and 60s, you know, who are getting unemployed. Mm. And they are the the group that creates the Tea Party Mm. when Obama gets elected after the financial crisis. And they are the base of Trump. Mm. But again, these are not white working class. These are the white-collar workers in, you know, business processing, that kind of sector. And they are vicious about what's happened to their lives, as in a sense they should be. Now, what's interesting about whether Indians come in in this is that Indians have to some extent mucked about with these people's lives. But it's not the fault of Indians. It's how capitalism has operated geographically. It turns out, of course, that if you had a office in Ohio, a very large place in in a suburban area, you had 50 employees, and you were doing the kind of paperwork for a hospital, let's say. Okay, you know, all hospital billing records were going through you. And, you know, you had people making pretty decent salaries come in, sitting at a terminal. You know, you, you basically had some database training. And you were managing the paperwork because the hospital didn't want to keep that on site. Now, once you develop the technology to have the uh, sec- you know uh, quite a secure server that runs wires or through satellite to somewhere in Bangalore, you're going to take advantage of the fact the wages are less. Hmm. So there was a hemorrhaging of those kind of jobs to India. Now by the way, India is losing it to China, Hmm. you know, and to other places, not just China. And India always thought it's inviolable because you have English English. and you have 24 hours because you can run, when they're sleeping, you can also be working. You know, you can have a night shift here and a day shift. So India thought it was inviolable, but actually it had nothing to do with English and all that. It had to do with wages. If Malaysia is going to be cheaper, you move there or somewhere else. You'll always find her somewhere. Mm -hmm. You know, wage rates will always work against people. Yeah. It will always work against people. They may return to India Mm -hmm. when Indian wage rates collapse more, Mm -hmm. but it's always. So that is one resentment that starts to develop in the central part of America against Indians. Secondly, these companies are smart. So Tata Consultancy and other firms figure out, look, you can either bring the jobs here Oh, listen, that's a pain because then you have to set up, you know, servers, secure lines, and you don't know, you have to train people, it's a big drag. Why not hire 20 people instead of 50, get them from the top Indian tech places, get some from IIT, IIM, whatever, You hire 20 people, put them in black backpacks, black backpacks white shoes, black trousers and a bush shirt, send them off as TCS employees, Six months, they live in a basically in a little hotel, you know, motel on the outskirts of town mm-hmm. and they bus into the uh, hospital or to some off-site location and they work there. Now they get paid lower wages than if they had been people hired in America. Mm-hmm. But for them, of course, it's huge wage. They come back with this chunk of money, you know, and then they start their own startup or whatever in Madurai and, you know, Chennai, wherever. But So there are two ways in which these, you know, workers were being displaced. One was the job was coming here, the other people were coming in. Mm -hmm. The people coming in generated enormous resentment. So in this last election campaign, there were these groups that emerged quite spontaneously, which were like anti-Indians. So there was one group in Ohio, they took cameras and went to parks and were following around Indians saying, look, they drive a Mercedes Benz, now, actually, the people they followed most likely were not TCS fellows, because, you know, I know what they look like. They have a uniform, as I said, black backpack, whatever. They're not spending any money in America. They're not certainly not buying a Mercedes-Benz. Mm. What they found was they found in a park, perhaps these were some people who own a motel or something. They bought a car, you know. Mm. They followed them, intimidating them. So Indians have become one of the foci. Of this feeling that somebody is taking my jobs away, okay. it's a dangerous thing. But the Indian media has reported this zero. Okay. Part of this feeling that India and America have a close relationship mm-hmm. has meant that anything yeah. that's detrimental to this relay barely gets reported.
0: Mm-hmm. So the this uh, the way uh, the Americans see Indians is it the same reason why even Mexicans and uh, Muslims, everyone are uh, looked at for such uh, such hatred.
1: I mean, to be fair, you know, one shouldn't say Americans do this or Americans do that. I mean, it's certain sections that have seized on this. Um, you know, I would say that this section that was very much in with Trump uh, seized on three, uh, you know, social sectors that they blamed for their, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of impossibility of their living standards. They blamed Mexican immigrants, they blamed Muslims in general, and they blamed H-1B Indians, you know, if you can put it narrowly. And this was the target of their anger, meaning, look, Trump didn't go out at the stump and say, you know, you're losing your jobs because of capitalism, Mm -hmm. because of productivity gains, because of outsourcing, uh, you know, that is bringing the massive profits that increases growth in America. Mm -hmm. So in other words, growth rates are going up, but your jobs are going, what we call jobless growth. Mm -hmm. So they didn't, uh, he didn't say that. He said, your jobs are going, I feel bad for you and they are going because of Mexicans, Muslims and H-1B. Hmm. And so then people are going to attack those three.
0: Uh, coming back to the question of culture, uh, it's said that in the dark times you get the best of literature and best of cultural production and art. So is it really happening? So yeah, you can you can uh, dis- disagree, but... Uh, is it happening? Is it not happening? Is it the dark times? Is it not dark times?
1: I mean, listen, we've been in dark times for a very long time. Like, I mean, you know, one of the things about human beings is they always say, oh, my God, it's horrible now. Mm. As if it was great before. And who was it great for before? Mm. Yeah. You know, take Indian, Indian society last 100 years. I mean, was it great for, say, a Dalit agriculturalist 50 years? It was the dark times. has been for a long while. Mm. So we tend to get worked up about these things. Now, certainly this is a pretty bleak and terrible moment. You know, there's been an eclipse of reason globally. Mm. Attacks on education inside India, attacks on thinking, attacks on freedom of expression, all that is happening. Not necessarily produces good literature. I mean, it can produce, it's a chilling effect. Mm. You know, people wouldn't do it if it didn't work. Intimidation works. Mm. People are silenced in some way or the other. What typically happens is in a moment of this kind of authoritarianism, you get great satire, incredible writing of disguise. Mm -hmm. The problem is that who's going to publish it today? Mm -hmm. You know, there may be hundreds of books written. There may be a million Indian Kafkas sitting in their homes who have written the most amazing satirical writing. Who's going to publish it? Most commercial publishers have no spine. I mean, look at the way in which publishers dealt with the attacks against them from the Hindutva uh, right. whether it's about Wendy Doniger's book or whoever's books, they pulp these books. They say sorry, they take them and they pulp them. So they don't have the guts to even publish mainstream academic books. I mean, what was so objectionable about Wendy Doniger's books on the history of the Hindus? What was so objectionable that the press didn't fight at all? You know, they never even stood their ground for a minute. They immediately conceded and pouted. If you're going to be so spineless, so driven by fear and the desire to make money, Mm. who's going to take the risks? So it's actually unfair to ask, will the best literature be written? Actual question is, will the best literature be published? Mm. And my answer is no. I don't think so. I think that the small independent presses may publish it. You know, we may publish 20, 30 titles a year. But people won't discover our books. You know, for us, the problem isn't publishing, it's discovery. You know, for them, that is the commercial gutless houses, the problem is publishing. They won't publish the books. It's easy to discover their books. You know, I mean, come on. You walk into any so-called bookstore. Actually, these are not bookstores anymore. They are basically advertisements for big houses, you know. They don't carry all kinds of books. Most of these places are Shops, mm. you know, they sell commodities, red cards, toys, this, that. And as it happens, they'll have Chetan Bhagat, which I don't even know if it's a book. Mm. Chetan Bhagat doesn't write books, he writes commodities. Mm. So in that sense, uh, this is what you see available. But they don't have the guts to publish mm. satire that gets under the skin of authoritarianism. I don't think it's going to happen.
0: Thank you Vijay. For, uh, toh, I hope you'll we'll meet again for another topic.